Hey, everybody. You're listening to the Legacy Church Podcast. Legacy Church is a multi-generational church that exists to worship God, become like Jesus, and bring hope to our community. Today, we're sharing a message from our current series. We believe that the Word of God is powerful and has real-life application to our lives today. We hope that this message encourages you. Get connected and learn more about us by visiting our website at lgcy.church. You may have heard this very famous scripture. It's a very popular one that, we, that people share, and it's exciting and it's great. It's in Isaiah 43, verse 19, and it says, Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. It's an exciting verse, right? You hear it and you're like, behold, I'm doing a new thing. This is God speaking to his people. Behold, I'm doing a new thing, making a way through the wilderness and rivers and wasteland or in the desert. And to give some context to this verse, God is speaking to Israel who are currently in exile in Babylon. And through the prophet Isaiah, he gives this message. And this time, at this point, this was long after what we just sang, you split the seas. This is long after God had delivered them, hundreds of years after he had delivered them from Egypt. And they had, he had brought them through the wilderness and he had split the sea and he had been a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke to keep them cool from the desert sun. And after he had brought them into the promised land. That all had happened and transpired and it was wonderful. And they were in the land of milk and honey. And now, <laughs> hundreds of years later, they find themselves in exile in Babylon, in a place that's not their home. So, a little more context to what God is saying. And there's a quote that puts it this way. Right now, Israel in Isaiah 43, it's addressed to Israel. They're stuck between the past and the future with little hope for the latter even though they know the former, even though they knew what God had done in the past, they're stuck and they're not, they don't have so much hope for the future. They're in this in-between moment and they know God had delivered them. They knew the stories from long ago, but they were struggling perhaps in their faith. Just wondering maybe if God would do the same thing now. It's fair. Fair question. It's like that happened, and then we messed it up again, and here we are in exile. <laughs> so maybe this time God's not going to be so forgiving. Maybe there's not so much hope. Now I'm going to ask another simple question, which I'm sure has a very simple answer. How many people here like new things? I like new things. I do. Who doesn't? New things are awesome. We tend to get new things because they often work better than the old things, right? There's often upgrades if it's technology. Um, but if it's something even as simple as like a pair of shoes, maybe your old ones are just worn out, right? Simply like the older things or the older technology, it just can't keep up now. So you've got to get new things. There's nothing bad about that technology. There's nothing bad about that pair of shoes you once had, but it no longer serves a purpose to where you're going. You're done with it. Like the shoes have worn out, there's holes, even though they're your favorite pair, and you're like, oh man, these are the best shoes. 
Got to get a new pair for where I'm going. I need something new. And we like to tend to focus on this part of the scripture in Isaiah where he says, behold, I'm doing something new. We love new things. Like, and maybe some of you are at this state in your life right now where you feel like Israel. You're like, man, I could really use a new thing right now. Like, I'm done. I'm done with where I'm at. Like, God, I could really use a new thing in my life. Whatever that means. Breakthrough, whatever it means. Done. That one line, walking around these walls. I thought by now they'd fall. God, I could really use a new thing right now. <laughs> could really use something. So if we look at just a few verses before this one, it gives us an entirely different perspective on what God is saying. I'm gonna read it, Isaiah 43, 15 to 19. He says, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your King. And thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the power. This is Pharaoh he's talking about because when Israel was delivered from Egypt, Pharaoh came running right back after them with all of his armies ready to take them back. So God is talking about this. He's like, remember what happened all those hundreds of years ago? I'm the God of that. I'm the God who made that happen. And it said, they're extinguished. They're quenched like a wick. They drowned in the Dead Sea. The enemies vanquished in the blink of an eye, gone. And then he says, do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will make a road in the wilderness and, and rivers in the desert. I've titled my message today, Former Things. And I have another question for you. Do we understand what it takes to behold the new? Do we understand what it means? In order to properly behold the new, you have to let go of the old, right? In order for me to get a new pair of shoes, generally, <laughs> generally, you gotta let go of an old pair. Get an upgrade on your phone, you gotta say goodbye to the old operating system. Anything else, new car, gotta get rid of the old one. For the most part, it means saying goodbye to something that was old, right? And all of these things served us well at one point, and they just don't anymore. We need something else, and that's totally okay. See, God provided, it's the same thing with God. God provided manna in the wilderness for his people, to keep them alive. Food from heaven, like this mysterious, nourishing, what is it? That's what manna means, what is it? They're like, I don't even know what this is. I know what pheasant is, I know what fish is, what is this thing? He provided that for them, but that was for then, and this is for now, right? They didn't need it when they went into the promised land. Because what was in the promised land, if anyone knows? The land of? So why would you need manna? And I love what it says in verse 19. It says, now it springs forth. Do you not know it? Or in other translations, it says, do you not perceive it? Do you not perceive it? The, whole, the new thing, do you not perceive it? And this word perceive actually means like to take in. To take in. It's like you ingest it and you know it. You don't just hear, you don't just see with your eyes. It's like it becomes you. 
It becomes a part of you to take in entirely. So you're just like, oh, okay. God's asking, do you not take in entirely what I'm trying to do here? What God did for you in the wilderness is not what he's going to do for you in the promised land. What he did for you last year or even last month or even yesterday, he might not do the same way today. Yes, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes, but he's infinite. You don't need to change when you're infinite. There's infinite possibilities, right? Like you, he could do infinite things in infinite ways in our lives. So he's trying to reach out to us. He's brought us out of slavery. He's brought us out of sin, out of a season of hardship. And he's done miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. But he wants to do more. And it won't look like the past. And the key is that we have to let go of the former things. But I want you to notice in this scripture, do you notice how it doesn't say, forget the trauma, forget the hardship, forget the bad things that happened to you, let go of the hurt, let go of the pain, let go of the weight. No. He says, you know what I did for you? Forget that. Forget about it. It's like some, some kid who does something for you. They're like, mommy, daddy, look at this. And they do something. And you're like, man, that's great, junior. And they're like, mommy, daddy, look at this. And you're like, oh, that's awesome. And then they get older and then they get more capable. And they're like, mom, dad, watch this. And you're like, whoa. And it blows your mind. It's this whole new thing. What they did at the beginning wasn't bad. What God did wasn't bad. But he's saying, forget about that. God's like, just you, th you thought that was amazing. Wait till you see what I can do next. Wait till you see what I've got for you on the other side of this. Wait till you see what else I can do. So he's actually asking us to forget about what he's done in our lives. Not in a bad way where it's like, don't remember it. But don't hold on to it and expect God to show up the same way, the same time, the same haircut, the same thing, the same outfit every single time. He's going to do it differently. And oftentimes we put God in a box. Well, God, like even for me personally, last year I was going through a lot of stuff. God showed up in dreams and visions like never before in my life. That was then. This is now, not that I haven't had dreams this year or anything, but if I'm sitting here and I'm like, well, God didn't give me a dream about it. So what's, what's going on? Like I'm waiting for him to show up in a dream and he's like, I've given you a person who's going to speak into your life prophetically. I've given you my word. I've given you other things nature sometimes. You go out and you're just like, whoa, you get a revelation in nature about the awesomeness of God in like five seconds. But it's like if I'm like, oh, well, it wasn't a dream or a vision. Can't be from God. We box him in. I still need God. We still need him. That has not changed. But the method's going to change. The method will change. There's a story I'm going to read to you. It's a funny one. You may have heard it before. And it's about this. A storm descends on a small town, and the downpour soon turns into a flood. As the waters rise, the local preacher kneels in prayer on the church porch, surrounded by water. 
By and by, one of the townsfolk comes up to the street in the canoe. Better get in, preacher. The waters are rising fast. No, says the preacher. I have faith in the Lord. He will save me. Still the waters rise. Now the preacher is up on the balcony, wringing his hands in supplication when another guy zips up in a motorboat. Come on, preacher. We need to get you out of here. The levee is going to break any minute. Once again, the preacher is unmoved. I shall remain. The Lord will see me through. After a while, the levee breaks. <laughs> And the flood rushes over the church until only the steeple remains above water. The preacher's up there clinging to the cross when a helicopter descends out of the clouds. An estate trooper calls down to him through a megaphone. Grab the ladder, preacher. This is your last chance. Once again, the preacher insists the Lord will deliver him. And predictably, he drowns. <laughs> a pious man, the preacher goes to heaven. And after a while, he gets an interview with God. And he asks the Almighty, Lord, I had unwavering faith in you. Why didn't you deliver me from the flood? And God shakes his head. He said, what did you want from me? I sent you two boats and a helicopter. <laughs> Pretty sure you knew where that story was going. And it's funny, but it's just like us. We're like, but God, I've been waiting. I've been walking around these walls. These people are in captivity. God, we're in captivity. This isn't our home. Where are you? Are you going to show up again? Are you going to deliver us the same way? Like, where are you? Or is there even any hope? And God's like, I've got stuff for you. I'm coming. He's giving these messages. He's like, you know what? I'm the same God today as I was back then. And I can do greater things for you. And I love this too. It's like I said earlier, why are you looking for manna? in the land of milk and honey? Why are you waiting for crumbs of bread when you've got a feast? God's got a feast. It says here in the scripture in Joshua 5:12. this is after the Israelites entered Canaan, the promised land. It says, and the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. They no longer needed manna. It was good. It was good for them at the time. It was what they needed. They no longer needed it. Another question I have for you, it's like, what former things perhaps are you holding on to that could be hindering the new that God wants to do? What former things, what former ways of thinking, what old mentalities, good things though, not trauma, not hurt, not pain, all valid things, all things that need healing, all things that we need to work through, yes. But what things has God done in your life that you're kind of like, well, you showed up then. Why aren't you doing it the same way this time? Come on, God. Come on. Where are you? Instead, we should be like, God, how are you going to show up this time? I'm in exile in Babylon. How are you going to show up this time? I know who you are. I know what you did in the past. I know how you set us free once. I know how you set me free once before. I know the good things you've done. What way are you going to show up now? I'm facing down this giant. I killed a lion and a bear. I'm facing this giant. How are you going to come through for me this time, God? I'm excited. What are you going to do? What story am I going to get to tell? What am I going to get to tell? God didn't peak in the wilderness. <laughs> Think about it. 
People are like, ah, I peaked at 24. God didn't peak in the wilderness. He didn't peak when he split the seas. Like how magnificent of a miracle is that? I wasn't even there and I try to picture it and I watch movies about it and I'm like, how do I ever doubt God after seeing something like that? How? But he's got greater things. And the bigger picture here was that even what God was saying to Israel didn't just involve them. At this time when he says, see, I'm doing a new thing. I'm going to create a way through the wilderness and rivers in a wasteland. He wasn't talking about a desert. He was talking about people. He was talking about people now. He was foreshadowing Christ coming, bringing salvation to the world. Not just Israel. Yes, they're the chosen people, but he's like, don't you understand? Can you not see what I'm getting at here? Yes, I love you. Yes, you're my people. Yes, I've set you free, but I want the world. I don't want just this. I want the world. This is for the world. He was foreshadowing, again, hundreds of years later. And he was trying to get them to see past the thing and to see him. Because that is the key. Don't focus on the miracle. Focus on the miracle worker. It's great that God showed up in dreams and visions, but now I'm looking at the dreams and visions like, man, that was fantastic. And it's like, God's like, hi, the one who made them, the one who knows all, the infinite, the all-knowing, all-seeing, ever-present. Don't get stuck in how it was done, how he did it. Focus on him. That's what he wants. Let go of those former things. Let go of that. Focus on me. Focus on the unchanging one. Focus on, hold on to him. God wants redemption for the world and we want to be set free from a crappy situation. Not that that's wrong, but we get so inwardly focused and horse blinders sometimes. God wants to do more. His freedom, the thing that he has for you, the new thing doesn't just affect you. It's going to affect other people, your family. That Jericho that fell down, it allowed for a nation to be occupied. It allowed for like millions of people changed their destiny. Those things in your life that God is doing, the new things, they're not just for you. And that's a good thing. And he's trying to help us understand like, hey, be encouraged. It's going to set you free, but it's going to set lots of other people free. And lots of other people are going to get to see the power and the glory of God. And it all hinges on that. It all hinges on us just step by step, layer by layer. Okay, God, I'm not going to get caught in the details. I'm not going to get caught in the details. I'm going to hold on to you. Because if there is one thing we can hold on to, it is God, right? Be confident. This is my confidence. You've never failed me yet. I love those lines. I'm like, wow, I see you move. You're moving mountains. And I believe that you'll do it again. You made a way where there was no way. And I know, I believe you'll do it again. You split the seas so I could walk right through it. You drowned my fears in perfect love. You rescued me so I can stand and say, I'm a child of God. So much greater than what we could ever understand. And we get the joy and the excitement to just let go, to let go, surrender. Hold on to him, but let go of everything else.
Thank you. She crushed it. All right. Look at me using technology. I'm usually up here with a piece of paper. This technology is bright. Hang on. Fancy. Hi. <laughs> that was so good. <laughs> you crushed that, Leo. That was so good. I love that. Forget the former things because something better is coming. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Ellie. Hi. Uh, I'm from America. From, I'm from Missouri specifically, which is not the South, but it's close enough that butter is still a food group. And if you've talked with me for like any length of time, you've heard me say a and y'all in the same sentence. That's how you know I've acclimated. Have you actually, do you guys use y'all? Does anybody in here actually say y'all? Thank you, my people. Have you, do you know what y'all is? Okay, yeah, it's not just hillbilly for you. It's a contraction, it's you all. And in my opinion, it's the most useful, underrated piece of grammar that English doesn't actually have. Um, so in case you're not familiar, it's me, you, you all. And if you wanna go real big, it's all y'all all y'all. As in, all y'all better be taking notes because this is going to matter in a second. <laughs> so in Greek, the language used to compose most of the New Testament, they actually have this second person plural pronoun, y'all. It doesn't say y'all, it probably says something in Greek, right? Um, and it just means that when we're reading the, Old the New Testament, we need to be careful because what we read in English as you could actually mean more than one person. It could be a group, not just one. So we have to be diligent to investigate because they have a pronoun that we don't. So here's a couple of examples. When Jesus gives the Great Commission, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. But in modern English, we tend to take this personally. If I go out and I share Jesus with people, then he'll be with me. That's not what it says. The original Greek says that all of those yous are y'alls. Teach them what I taught y'all. I am with y'all always. Jesus is speaking to a group, not just individuals. And yet, it's also personal because a crowd is made up of one person and one person and one person, right? All and one. Another good example is in John 14. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Again, every one of those yous is a y'all. If y'all love me, y'all will keep my commandments. The Father will give y'all another helper, the Holy Spirit, right? He dwells with y'all and will be in y'all. Not a singular you, 
although like we just said, right, the y'all is made up of individual use. The Holy Spirit is actually promised to each person listening and to the group. And even better, because the word of God transcends time, we can take the next step and know that Jesus is not just instructing the disciples that are listening, but everyone in the future who will hear and receive his word. So not just y'all, but all y'all, that's us. Isn't grammar fun? And this kind of group address is happening all over the New Testament, especially in Paul's letters. And as a traveling preacher, his writing is filled with instruction, exhortation, encouragement, correction, things we tend to take personally in our context as modern North American individualists. But Paul was caring for multiple churches filled with brand new believers in a collectivist context. He isn't just addressing one by one use. He's addressing each church as a whole, as a y'all, as a corporate unit with its own needs, identity, and function as the body. So the perfect example of this is 1 Corinthians 3.16. This is the verse that God sniped me with, uh, thinking about how powerful this you versus y'all construction is. Now this is a really familiar verse, uh, but I really want you to hear it in a new way, so come with me here. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Do y'all not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? So just as Jesus promised, the helper, the spirit of truth has come. And all who believe in the name of Jesus who are cleansed of their sin and born again, receive the very spirit of the living God to make his home within them and fill them with power the same way he did with the temple. But remember what we're looking at. Paul isn't speaking to one person. He's speaking to a local church composed of multiple individuals that come together to form one body. Y'all are God's temple. God's spirit dwells in y'all, second person, plural. So yes, the Holy Spirit dwells in me, is guiding and teaching me, is nurturing his gifts in my life. And because he lives in me, I am his temple, a holy heaven and earth place that meets in a beautiful form that is designed to praise God. And also, the Holy Spirit dwells within the church, the gathering of believers that forms the body of Christ, a unique and discrete entity with a life of its own, which is composed of many parts yet is one, a holy place where heaven and earth meet in a beautiful form designed to praise God. You can think of it like this. Um, think of the difference between the stone that Jacob erected in the desert and the temple of Solomon. One is a simple rock set up in the middle of nowhere that took seconds. And the other was tons of gold, silver, precious gems, fragrant wood in Jerusalem that took seven years to build. Both of them are holy. Both of them saw and heard God but only one of them was where God made his home. Only one where his full presence was made manifest 
in the temple. Peter brings this together really well. He says, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Each of us is a stone, like Jacob used, good by itself, individually sanctified and set apart for the worship and glory of the Lord. Yet when we bring our stones together, resting on Christ the cornerstone, we form the temple. Similar to how Christ was fully man and fully God during his time on the earth. The Holy Spirit is full and complete within you, yet is somehow more full and complete when the yous come together to form a y'all. Our relationship with the Holy Spirit is incomplete when we go it alone because it's in our togetherness that the Holy Spirit's work unfolds most powerfully. Jesus said we would do greater things than he did, but he certainly didn't mean for us to go it alone. How could we? No one person can go and make disciples of all nations. No one person can be a city on a hill. It takes more than one person to love one another as he loved us. We must do it together because it is too much for one you. It requires a y'all. It's not good for man to be alone. And by neglecting to meet together, we are not just hurting ourselves socially. We're denying the Holy Spirit full expression in us and within the body and therefore in the world. So what do we do? If we wanna do and be all that God created us for, if we want more of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we must earnestly seek his presence, not just in the isolation of our prayer closets, but at the dinner table, in a classroom, on a trail, in the pew, in a hundred part harmony. Wherever two or three are gathered in Jesus's name, we find the spirit of the Lord. And where we find him, there is freedom, power and protection which we desperately need. Because it's real easy when we're alone to listen to our flesh or the enemy directing our thoughts and emotions and to confuse that with the Holy Spirit's conviction or even deny him outright. When we're together though, there's no denying him because you meet him in every handshake and conversation. What's hidden becomes clear when we connect with fellow believers. The Spirit moves, reveals, corrects, and matures us in ways far greater than we could ever experience alone. Some of us hate that though, that being perceived by the Holy Spirit through our brothers and sisters. And so we stay away. We stay comfortably hidden and unchallenged. But I'm telling you, if we wanna grow, change, and be transformed into the likeness of Christ, we must lean in. We must meet and worship and do life as the body. In community, each one of us a vessel for the Holy Spirit. As iron sharpens iron, as we pray and confess, as the Lord's hands and feet, using our gifts to serve one another, that is how we bring together the stones of our individual altars and form the temple of the living God, that heaven and earth place where miracles happen and the kingdom is built. The Holy Spirit 
himself is in no way diminished when we keep to ourselves. But we most certainly are. We can choose to isolate ourselves, to be content with our single flame, with the pilot light of the Holy Spirit within us, and we can call that good. We can do that, we have that choice. But if we do that, we will never experience him the way that Jesus promised. We will never receive the fullness of his power, never behold the majesty of those flames coming together to form a holy bonfire. We must not just accept but embrace the truth that in this age, God has chosen to build his temple, his home, his kingdom, by forming a y'all where there once was just a you. One living stone at a time. Wow. So, uh, uh, They have set the table for me. And uh, I get to share a message that God has put on my heart. And uh, I think it's going to change the way you look at the world and at the Bible. A young man went to Jesus and he said, Rabbi, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus said, this is the first and greatest commandment that you should love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. The second is like it. You shall love thy neighbor as thyself. There is no commandment greater than these. I'm here to tell you that there's a third great commandment. And I'm gonna tell you what it is and why I think it's the third great commandment. And I think it's important, it's a new thing that I'm kind of sharing with you, something that God shared with me recently. It's old, but it's new. This is like what we just heard. And I think it fits in with what Ellie had to say because in order to be unified, you have to be unified in truth. If I say that this is a yellow dot, nobody's going to agree with me. But if I say it's green, everybody will say, yeah, that's true. So in order to have unity, we have to have truth. Okay. Can we see uh, Genesis 18? Now, I want, to, I, I want to emphasize to you how important these verses are. And I don't know how to do that. I was thinking maybe I could set my hair on fire and jump up and down and yell and scream at you people. That would be a sight you would never forget, but it wouldn't necessarily give you the truth of the scripture. So what I'm gonna ask you to do is stand as we read these words. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Go ahead and sit down. 
This is all about the future. Abraham will become a mighty nation. And this is a command for all his children and his household after him. This is an all y'all. This is a command from Moses, to, from God to Abraham, to you and me. It is 400 years before Moses will get any of the other commandments of the law. It comes from the man that changed everything. Just a few chapters earlier, God destroyed the entire world. He said, everyone is doing nothing but evil all day long, continuously. But of Abraham, he says, this is my pal. He's not going to drop the ball. He, I know him that he's going to do what is right and just. And he's going to command us what to do. Command from God to Abraham to us. This is a big deal. If I was jumping up and down with my hair on fire, I couldn't emphasize this more. What is this command? God then goes on to say in Genesis 20, 18, 21, Abraham, I'm going to go in to Sodom and Gomorrah. I've heard the cry come to me that a great evil is being done there. And I'm going to check it out. And if it is as bad as they say it is, I'm going to know. And Abraham goes, uh-oh. Abraham knows exactly what that means. God is going to know, and God is going to destroy that city. Lock, stock, and barrel. So the command that Abraham gives us is to go in and intercede. When God pronounces judgment on a sinner, he wants you to intercede because Abraham goes to God five times. And he says, God, you, you wouldn't do that. You're not going to destroy the city for the sake of 50 righteous. You're not going to do that. You wouldn't do that. You're the judge of all the earth. Won't you spare the city for the sake of 50 righteous? And God says, yes, I'll spare the city for the sake of 50 righteous. And Abraham comes to him again and says, God, you wouldn't destroy the city for lack of 10. Not for lack of 10. You're not going to do it if, there's, if you're just missing 10. And God says, I won't destroy the city if I find 40 in there. And Abraham goes all the way down until God says, I won't destroy the city if I find 10 righteous in the city. Of course, we know that Abraham didn't know. There's only one righteous. That's Jesus Christ, our King and Savior. If Abraham had known what we know, he would have said, won't you spare the city for the sake of the one who is righteous, Jesus Christ. And if I know my God, what he would have done at that point is said, yes, I will. Why don't you go in there and tell them about Jesus? See, that's what God wants. He wants you first to pray intercede for that person. And then when you intercede, he's going to say, go in there, tell them, tell them the good news that the wicked are spared for the sake of the one who is righteous, even Jesus Christ. Now you say, 
Rob, you're so naive. You don't know anything. The people that I know, they're so wicked. They're so much more wicked than these people in Sodom and Gomorrah. God doesn't want me to intercede for them. Really? <laughs> you see, they found Sodom and Gomorrah. They know where it is. And the guys there were like, what's all this volcanic glass? <laughs> they found out that it was a glass that only forms when uh, the sand reaches a temperature of 8,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And they, the reason they found that out was because it's the same stuff they found when they went and looked at the uh, Alamogordo nuclear test site that has recently been in the movie uh, Oppenheimer. It's the same stuff. God destroyed that city with nuclear fire. They were wicked with a capital W. Jesus later compares them to the, to the people of Noah's day. And he says that there's going to be just as bad in the days, in the final days. He's comparing them to the most wicked people on earth. He's, and if God wants Abraham to intercede for those wicked people, he wants us to intercede for every sinner that we know. Okay? But you're, you're standing, you come to me and you say, Rob, you said this was important. You said this was, this was gonna change the way you look at the Bible. What, what, this is the great commission. We've known about this since Jesus sent us out to go and save a world full of lost sinners. What's the big deal? This is in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He always wanted this. He always wanted people to intercede for sinners so he could send them in there. That's what he always wanted. Don't let anybody ever tell you that the God of the Old Testament is not the same as the God of the New Testament. Take him right here to Genesis 18. God wants and commands all of us. David had this command. He knew this story. Moses had this command. He knew this story. Every character, with a possible exception of Job and some of the ones who show up only before Genesis 18, knew this story and had this command. How'd they do? When you read the Old Testament, when God says, hey, we've got a city full of sinners over here, they deserve to be destroyed. The next thing you should read is how the people of Israel got down on their face and said, Lord, will you not have mercy on those sinners for the sake of the ones who are righteous? That would be to be obedient to this command. But they didn't do that. And almost 2,000 years later, Jesus comes and he sees their fig tree and he gives them their report card. The fig tree represents the nation of Israel. And God checks it out and he says, there's no fruit here. I've been patient with you guys. I've been loving with you guys. I've provided for you guys. I've sent you prophet after prophet. I've not seen any fruit worthy of repentance. He uses their hardness of heart to save the entire world by going to the cross when they reject him. And then he turns to the church and he says, you guys are like my friend Abraham. You're not gonna drop the ball. I know Abraham. When I tell him somebody's condemned as a sinner, 
He's going to intercede. Now, this is an interesting thing I want to kind of finish up with. Linda, if you want to come up here. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. The promise of God given just previously in these verses was the kingdom. And they didn't get it because they didn't do it. Okay, that's what it says here. He may, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring what he was promised. The promise is contingent upon the obedience to intercede. So the three great commands are love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind. Love thy neighbor as thyself and intercede when God pronounces judgment on someone who has sinned and fallen short of his laws. That you may have the promise that God has given us, the promise of the coming kingdom. All right. See, God always wanted to see. He wants us to be a part of the family. He wants us to be a part of a group of men and women who love each other and love him as well. And that's the invitation that he wanted to make then. It's the invitation that he wanted to make when he came down here and he showed us how to do it. Because he knew that without his Holy Spirit, there wasn't a snowball's chance in heck that man could show that kind of love. Without him, we are nothing. We can do nothing. In him, we are more than a conqueror. That was the only way it was ever going to happen was Jesus had to come. So, if there's anybody, and if you guys would just lower your heads and bow down, we're going to pray. I'm going to make an invitation here. Anybody here who wants to be a part of God's family, God has been trying for thousands of years to get us to love one another, to intercede for one another. And if there's anybody here today who wants to accept that invitation, who wants to be a part of God's family and accept that you are one of the wicked who needs the intercession of Jesus Christ, then I offer that to you right now. Go ahead and lift your hand and see if you want to join God's family. So I'm going to close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just come before you and we thank you, Lord God. We thank you for the truth of your word. You are faithful, Lord God. You are good. You are loving. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Your word and your promises are true, Lord God. We worship and give you praise. 
We just come before you. We thank you for each other, Lord God. We thank you that we are a part of your family, Lord God. All of our flaws have been forgiven in you. All of our failures are wiped away by the blood that makes us as white as snow. We thank you and praise you for you, for who you are, Lord God. You are awesome. You are our great king. You are perfect and unconditional love. You are worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And we thank you especially for your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross that we might be forgiven of every sin. In Jesus' name we pray and ask you to bless us this week. Bless us as we love one another. Bless us as we pray for those who are wicked, for those who make us extremely angry, for those who, who injure us or persecute us, Lord God. We want to be like your friend Abraham. We want to be obedient, Lord God, and love those who hate us, just as you do, Lord. We thank you for all that you've done for us. In the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Thanks for listening. To hear more, subscribe to this podcast and connect with us on our website at lgcy.church.